Genderfuge, a podcast co-produced this third season with students from Mount St. Vincent University who are taking the 3,000-level sociology and anthropology course, Social Theory and Issues. My name is Kellyanne Mullinen, and our guests today are Ashley Avery and Robert Clark. Before drafting questions for this podcast, students read the article, I'm very careful about that, Narrative and Agency of Men in Prison, a 2006 piece by the late John P. McKendy. Ashley Avery is a queer feminist, advocate, mother, and poet. She is currently the executive director of Coverdale Courtwork Society, a nonprofit community-based organization that provides support to women and gender-diverse people who are involved in the criminal justice system. She holds an honors diploma in social studies from Mount St. Vincent University. Ashley is also in graduate school, studying for a master's in women and gender studies under the supervision of Elle Jones and Dr. Rachel Zellers. In 2020, her work to support the exodus of over 41% of the jail population in response to COVID-19 won the Michael McDonald Access to Justice Award. This is Ashley's second time being a guest on our podcast. We also have Robert Clark with us today. During his career with Corrections Canada, Robert Clark rose through the ranks from student volunteer to deputy warden. He worked with some of Canada's most notorious prisoners, including Tyrone Kahn and Paul Bernardo, and he dealt with escapes, lockdowns, murders, suicides, and a riot. But he also arranged ice hockey games in a maximum security institution, sat in a darkened gym watching movies with 300 inmates, took parolees sightseeing, and consoled victims of violent crime. In his monograph, Down Inside, Clark takes readers into prisons large and small, from the minimum security Pittsburgh Institution to the Kingston Regional Treatment Center for the Mentally Ill and the the notorious and now closed maximum security Kingston Penitentiary. He challenges head-on the popular belief that a tough-on-crime approach makes communities and prisons safer, arguing instead for humane treatment and rehabilitation and for an end to the abuse of solitary confinement. Robert Clark began his career with Corrections Canada in 1980, working in the gymnasium at the medium security Joyceville Institution. Over the next 30 years, he worked at seven different federal prisons and in almost every conceivable role. Robert lives in Kingston, Ontario. Um, I'd like to start by asking if each of you could tell us a bit about your experience with the criminal justice system. So maybe building um, on the experience I just described and telling us more about the quality um, of that experience, how you would characterize it. Uh, Robert, would you mind starting? No, I'd be happy to. First of all, I'd like to say thank you for inviting me to participate today with Avery. And um, I guess as you've outlined my uh, correctional CV a little bit there, I think I started as a volunteer when I was going to Queen's University to attend the Faculty of Education. And uh, as it turned out, I stayed with the prison system after my volunteer work. And as you've noted, I worked for 30 years. But I guess in terms of my experience, um, given that you've mentioned that I've worked in seven prisons, I'll outline something a little bit different and, and just say that my very first experiences working in prison were, of course, as a 22-year-old university student, a volunteer. And when I entered the system, no one told me how to behave or how to interact with the prisoners. I was left to my own devices. 
So what I did was I just treated them the same way as I treat anyone else, people on the street, family, friends, whatever. And I found it through my own firsthand experiences that 99% of the people who are incarcerated will meet civility with civility. My experience of people who are incarcerated is that they can be every bit as pro-social in their interactions with others uh, when they're treated with respect. My experiences of difficulties in prisons uh, that arise from, I guess, what you would call offender-related problems is when the prisoners are showing disrespect or when their needs are disregarded. And so these were the kind of things I, I took with me throughout my career, and they affected and impacted how I approached my job, Is I guess is what I would say. Yeah, thank you for that. And before I turn to Ashley, I'd like to just follow up a little bit on what you were saying and ask if you feel that in general, people working in the prison system learn that they should treat inmates with, with disrespect. Was the way that you carried yourself with regard to inmates a bit different from what you generally observed? Yes, I will. First of all, let me apologize to Ashley for reversing her name. Yes, as I've noted in my book, I've met in prison many staff who are very dedicated, uh, motivated people who tried to make a difference, but they represented a small percentage of the total workforce. My experience uh, with Corrections Canada caused me to see that there's an organizational culture within Corrections Canada, which is bordering on negligent, I would say. I described it as a culture of collective indifference. But when you consider the uh, legal ramifications of abusing things like solitary confinement, holding back visiting and other rights and things like that, often on an arbitrary basis, then you're into the realm of what's legal and what's not legal. In answer to your question more succinctly, yes, there is a negative organizational mm -hmm. culture. And in my experience, it permeates every prison. And the vast majority of staff, I'm sad to report, do not do their job with the level of professionalism that they should. Thank you. Thanks very much for that response. Ashley, can you tell us a little bit about your experience working with the criminal justice system? Sure. So my experience began back in 2014 to Halifax from Toronto after working in the mental health sector and began working in a residential facility, which was designated for women who are exiting federal institutions and transitioning back into the community. So that was my very first experience with working with women who experienced criminalization and imprisonment. And I very quickly became incredibly critical of the prison system and the criminal justice system more broadly and began to develop really important relationships with the women who were coming into the house. And I felt at a certain point, I sort of felt that I was very limited in the ways in which I could support those women. Because of course, when you're working in a halfway house, you are bound by sort of the rules and regulations of Correction Services Canada. So I decided to sort of spread my wings and go elsewhere and find an organization in the community that would allow me to work more closely with women and, and work with sort of that very critical lens of the system. And so I moved to Coverdale, which is a community-based organization. Coverdale began in 1923 and 
it really was the first community-based alternative to prison. At the time that Coverdale began, the only prison for women was the Kingston Prison for Women. And so there was no correctional facilities in the maritime provinces. And the community in New Brunswick began to notice that their community members were being sent to Kingston to serve prison sentences. And they really wanted to create something in their own community that would allow them to provide the support and services to women in a more restorative and comprehensive way. So that sort of was the roots of Coverdale. And that really struck me. And so I began working with the organization and Essentially, what we do is provide a range of services and supports for women and trans, non-binary and two-spirit folks who are navigating the criminal justice system. We work in the courts, predominantly in the provincial jail. So my experience is more so with women who are serving time provincially or remanded provincially. And of course, What I have been focused on mostly over the last few years is on providing bail services to women. So you mentioned, Ashley, that you very quickly became extremely critical of the criminal justice system. Would you be able to kind of hone in on what you would refer to as the most significant systemic issue, or maybe a couple of the most significant systemic issues impacting individuals that you work with in the Nova Scotia criminal justice system? Absolutely. I think, you know, when I was new to this, I was certainly quite naive, but also shared, I guess, what I understand now to be this public narrative of why people are involved in the criminal justice system. So again, the broad community has this notion of having a tough on crime perspective really acknowledge or not acknowledging but really labeling people who are in conflict with the law as being deviant and criminal and deserving of punishment and punitive responses and what i very quickly learned what or what i was able to see in the halfway house was a humanization of the women who were exiting prison the majority of them were Indigenous, were African Nova Scotian, were people with mental health and addictions issues, were women who had grown up in the care system, who had experienced poverty, who had uh, very fragmented family connections. And so what I saw right off the bat was these are social problems. These are problems that we have created as a society that have really led women into prisons because various reasons, but because of the systemic issues that we as a society have really failed to provide the things that that people need Mm -hmm. to survive and and to thrive in society. Mm -hmm. So the kind of analysis that you're providing is really the opposite of the kind of responsabilization narrative that McKendie critiques in his article. This article, which I think both of you have had an opportunity to look at a little bit, spoke a lot about kind of pressure on individuals within the justice system to take responsibility for their crimes. And so this pressure is applied both within the courts and then in order, according to McKenzie, in order to access a lot of the programs that are available in the prisons and 
even to access parole. It's it's important, McKenzie says, for an inmate to fully take responsibility for their crime and not put responsibility on others or on society in general. And his critique is much like the one that you are mounting, Ashley, in saying that the causes of crime are actually external to the individual. And so there's something backward, according to McKenzie, in forcing individuals to take individual responsibility for their crime when that's actually not the nature of the beast. So the students wondered, Rob, whether in the context that you've worked in, you have seen this kind of pressure to expect to accept responsibility. Has responsibilization, to use McKendy's word, been something that you have observed in your work? I agree completely with what I heard from Ashley. My own experiences in the federal prison system are completely consistent with what she said. What wasn't mentioned in my CV, there's the various jobs I've had, and they include being a parole officer. And of course, as a parole officer, I at times had up to 50 prisoners on my caseload whose files I would review. And I would say that well over 80% of the files that I reviewed, and there were hundreds of them over the years, contain stories of terrible hardships and mistreatment of these prisoners during the earliest years of their lives. Many of them were abused in ways which uh, were actually hard to read. It was hard to read it. But, you know, kids having uh, being burned and things like that for misbehaving or just being beat up for no reason and, you know, alcoholism and family violence in the home. And so these kids take to the street and, you know, over the years as a parole officer, you read files all the time. You've got new guys coming all the time. The most common factor amongst all of these people is this issue of the earliest years when most of us expect to be safe and have someone take care of us. They grow up finding the world to be very dangerous. And so, yeah, I echo mm-hmm. those comments completely and they're completely consistent with what I saw. I should mention as a parole officer, uh, I attended many parole board hearings representing prisoners on my caseload. And yes, indeed, there's every expectation by the parole board that the prisoner will take full responsibility and will acknowledge primarily, I, I would suggest, that suggested by McKendy, the real thing is you are a responsible agent and you could have chosen differently. That's fundamentally what they want you to say. You did have your, you know, you did have a choice. And there is a, although in modern times now, we see more concern for the uh, causal factors of antisocial behavior. Back when I was a parole officer in the 1980s, these things were very rarely brought up other than, say, alcoholism. And that was just to see if the prisoner had a plan to address his alcoholism, not what it may have done to his life. McKendy talks a little bit um, as well about kind of shifts over time in terms of um, the focus of the criminal justice system. So he talks about there was um, what he refers to as a nothing works period of, I think, the 1970s. And then moving into the 1980s, we started to see more of this kind of pattern of responsabilization. Is that something that you can reflect on as well, Robert, given the period of time that you worked in the criminal justice system? How have things changed in terms of these questions of responsabilization from the beginning of the time that you were working in criminal justice to the end of your career? 
it's remained fairly consistent. There's been a lot of modernization depicted in the way the Correctional Service of Canada operates, but at ground zero, day in and day to day, those prevailing entrenched views, in my view, remain. I guess what I would say is that it has remained constant. The nothing works. I'm not so familiar with that. I think I had moved more to operations at that particular point in my career. I remember vividly the cognitive behavioral programming that was introduced by Porporino and Fabiano and how that was touted at the time to be something mm-hmm. that could, could make a big difference, but again, failed to address the causal factors behind it and was more about making different decisions and reflective of McKendry's concerns, I guess, about being a responsible agent. I hope that answered your question. I'll turn it back to you. It sure does. Yeah. Thank you. So, Ashley, one of the students asked a question very eloquently, and the wording was as follows, and it was directed to you. Given that a significant component of the current criminal justice system requires individuals to take some form of accountability for their actions, do you find it challenging to allow for that to take place while also empowering women to recognize their own victimization? So I guess this question kind of recognizes that the work of Coverdale and your activist work focuses on allowing women to recognize the contexts that brought them to their involvement with the criminal justice system on the one hand. And on the other hand, you're having to balance this with your knowledge of a criminal justice system that demands responsabilization. So how do you balance? It seems like a juggling act. How do you manage? I don't think there's any real eloquent way to answer that or there's no way to reconcile those two things. So what we are always doing as a community organization is working against the system while also trying to work within it so that we can ensure that there are just and humane responses within the criminal justice context while also supporting women to exit the criminal justice system. Of course, strongly believe that there can be no real accountability for some of the criminal justice involvement that women have because it's premised on this idea that women have autonomy and choice. And of course, many of these do not have either of those things. So it's certainly very challenging when you're going into, let's say, a provincial jail and you're trying to have really honest conversations with people recognizing that they are there because of domestic violence, they're there because of poverty and mental illness, while also trying to help them to move through the motions and do the things that are required of them in those settings in order for them to be treated fairly by the people who work in the prison and and to be considered for things like bail and release. We're looking at bail plans for women. Part of the process is really sort of making a case that this person is not going to commit another crime in the community. And that's very challenging because the idea of bail is based on this notion that people are presumed innocent until otherwise, until it's found that they are either guilty or otherwise within the court system. But it, it still very heavily relies on this idea that people are responsible, even though they haven't actually been convicted of any type of crime. But again, it's just this stigma and this labeling of women who are largely criminalized within the system. So I think it's a great question. I don't think there is a really good answer to it other than this is exactly what we do. We are always very critical of the system. We are always trying to empower women to to understand their own victimization, to label it, acknowledge it, and to find ways to heal 
And there's just no way to heal within a correctional facility. There's no way to find that sort of trauma-informed care within a punitive correctional setting. So that's why we advocate for community-based alternatives where you can really provide opportunities for healing and provide a different narrative that is not focused on accepting responsibility and accountability for actions that were really influenced by some of those systemic issues I mentioned earlier. Yeah. And now that you've brought up the topic of bail, as a parole officer, Robert, and you know, in your other roles with the criminal justice system as well, do you have any thoughts on bail conditions and whether the bail conditions that people come out of the prison system with usually kind of treat and respect ex-prisoners as whole people? Are they uh, conducive to the kinds of healing that Ashley is maybe talking about? I'm asking these questions because I've heard that the bail conditions themselves can be very difficult and almost impossible to live under, um, which is one of the reasons that people often end up back in prison. So I guess I'm kind of looking for your thoughts on that. Okay. Uh, Well, being from the federal system, my experience with bail from prison is somewhat limited, but I suspect the conditions and the circumstances are not unlike mandatory supervision or, or, pardon me, statutory release. Um, in that there are curfews, reporting conditions, uh, your analysis testing, things like that. Um, I was just going to clarify. So is bail a provincial terminology instead of conditions and then mandatory release is federal? This is a distinction that I wasn't aware of. I can certainly speak to, to bail very quickly. So in in 2019, I did a, a research study with Dr. Kasnabish and L. Jones um, out of Mount St. Vincent, and it was a research study that looked at the causes and consequences of breaching court orders for women in Nova Scotia. So it really was trying to figure out, or not figure out because we already knew, but really trying to uh, provide some, uh, some research uh, to maybe guide policy directives around why Nova Scotia has such high remand rates. So remand is pretrial custody and Nova Scotia um, incarcerates, in particular, African Nova Scotian and Indigenous women um, on remand. So people who have not been convicted of crimes, the rates are much higher in Nova Scotia than in comparison to other jurisdictions. And so we interviewed about 30 people in this community who have experienced incarceration and who have breached a court order. And of course, not to our surprise, we found out that the reasons people breach their court orders are because of homelessness, because of addictions, because the conditions are confusing, because they are arbitrary, because people are given conditions perhaps not to drink alcohol or use substances, even though they have an alcohol or substance use disorder. And then no treatment is provided, no services in the community are provided for them to be able to, uh, you know, address those issues. There has been, I guess I would say, uh, somewhat of a shift in terms of the provincial system trying to reduce some of those conditions and trying to make them more responsive to some of the social issues. But that certainly is, you know, it's dependent on who the judge is, it's dependent on who the lawyer is, and it still can be incredibly arbitrary. And uh, what I will say to that point as well is that what I see in the community, oftentimes what happens is a woman can be charged with a crime. She is then 
taken into custody and released on bail. And when she's released on bail, she receives a, a long list of conditions and then goes back into the community. Of course, the conditions in the community don't change. And so she's thrown back into the same conditions and she could breach some of those conditions. So the breach, you know, the conditions could be uh, you have a curfew or, you know, don't go to a certain location or don't see a certain person. So when those conditions are breached, those are new charges. And so what happens is that charges start to snowball and pile up. And then before you know it, women are reincarcerated. They're serving sentences for breaches, which are 30 days in, in a provincial jail. And they haven't actually been convicted of the original crime. And so this is how we see the process of really criminalizing people for social issues is they haven't even had their day in court for that original crime, but now they have maybe 60 breaches and they're serving, you know, up to six months in, in a jail, which is vastly different from a federal prison where there's no programming. Uh, you're predominantly spending your days in solitary confinement. It's a porous environment where infections can spread very quickly. There's very little access to, to family and to supports and things like that. So that's what I'll say about bail. <laughs> yeah. And so, Robert, how is um, what Ashley is describing with the bail situation similar or different um, from what you would experience in a federal institution? Well, yeah, I was listening to Ashley, and obviously um, many of the things she's saying resonate with me. And, I'll, you know, what I'll do is I'll compare it to statutory release because that's really the fundamental similarity. Statutory release is the last one-third of a federal sentence, and for the majority of prisoners, that is served in the community. So you serve two-thirds, you're released on statutory release, but you're released with a lot of conditions. And often without the support mechanisms necessary to meet the demands of your new life. So similar to the problems with bail, statutory release has its own pitfalls. If the person is lucky enough to be placed in a halfway house or gets a good attentive parole officer who is very assistive and very proactive in helping the prisoner succeed, then that's okay. But many fall through the cracks. Uh, many miss their meetings because of things that Ashley alluded to, problems that were there with the person before this all started. So if they miss a meeting or they fail a urine test, these kinds of things, these are problems which complicate the sentence. <clears throat> and they end up reincarcerated. So there's many similarities. Because, you know, this, these are societal issues, which is being alluded to. Uh, previously, and uh, yes, the exact same result can be seen when you impose very similar conditions to people who don't have the resources to overcome the things that led them to where they are. And the only thing I wanted to add on, because uh, when I was listening to Ashley, is, and I see it in everywhere in the criminal justice system, and I guess I would just point the fact that when you're first charged with a crime, but you haven't been convicted of it, you're really not treated any differently than if you had been convicted. The places you are housed and the things that are imposed upon you once your liberty is taken, they're not that different than someone who's already been convicted. And people like Ashley mentioned who are primarily in there for breaches, which I consider nuisance crimes, um, don't often have the safety of being separated from persons with more 
uh, serious offenses and persons who are maybe acting out physically more often. So there's a danger in being inside jail and community-based solutions are probably uh, the best thing that we can be looking at these days. That and restorative justice, I think, are probably the two things that we should be looking to towards in the future. But with that, I'll turn it back to you. Both of you have talked in different ways about the uh, problem of inmates being deprived of the opportunity to communicate with people on the outside. Um, and I think both of you may have used the term arbitrary, actually, to um, describe the way that this happens. So I was wondering if you could give me a little bit more detail. I'll ask Ashley first around this issue of communication between inmates and their friends and family members in the outside world. So, of course, pre-COVID, access to uh, the outside has always been an issue, access to family, to, to support system, which is an incredibly, incredibly important component of, of anybody's reintegration, is really developing and fostering and growing some of those community links and, and maintaining connection to people's support systems that are on the outside. And that is completely severed oftentimes. So we see things like phone calls, you know, the, the cost to make a phone call in jail is, uh, is ridiculously high. People get one phone call a day of 10 minutes. And then, you know, prisons and jails are often built out in the wilderness in the middle of nowhere, where it's really difficult for family to travel and to, you know, to actually come in to see their loved ones and, and their family members. But in the context of COVID, of course, that has been flipped on its head. So there is no access to prisons and jails right now uh, in Nova Scotia. So organizations like us who used to go in every week and meet with people and, and provide just a space for people to come and, and share their grievances and, and receive counseling and programming and supports, we aren't allowed in anymore. So we haven't been allowed in since last March. So there's no programming, no access. What people are getting right now is... is um, options to have video visits, which are very limited. They're restricted to 15 minutes. It requires that people have access to technology on the outside, which of course is, is very limited, especially for people who are living in poverty and don't have access to resources and, and, and technologies and internet and things like that. So what it does is it isolates people. And again, most, most women who are inside are, are women who have experienced extensive trauma, who have mental illness. And the worst thing you can do for a mental illness is to, to segregate, isolate, and remove any human contact, any care, any love, any compassion. And so what we're doing is just eliminating really the opportunity for women to, uh, to imagine a different kind of future, to really do the work of healing, which is so important to really addressing some of those root causes and underlying factors that led them into the system in the first place. So organizations like ours who, you know, we have a free line to the jail and, and prisoners can call us directly. We have seen such an increase in calls of people just needing somebody on the other line to listen, needing somebody on the other line to just breathe and to just be there and to just tell them, you know, what's going on and to just 
provide space for them to to know that someone is out there that gives a shit about them because otherwise that they you know they're just sitting in there with with nobody else but the other prisoners if they're lucky enough to uh to not be segregated uh which certainly has been happening more so because of COVID. So when people come into the jail, they have to be segregated so that they can get a COVID test and they they have to go into health segregation and then they have to go into a particular unit until they are cleared by the health team to then move into general population. So people are ex- you know experiencing more segregation and solitary confinement, certainly that has a different name uh, within the facility, but that's exactly what it is. In our introduction today, we said that in your 2020 work to support the exodus of over 41% of the jail population in response to COVID-19, you won the Michael McDonald Access to Justice Award. Um, So while we're touching on um, the conditions in prisons linked to the COVID-19 epidemic, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about that work, Ashley, this exodus of 41% of the jail population. I think nationally, Nova Scotia, uh, in my opinion, did some of the best work around making sure that prisoners were released who could be released. Not in the federal system. The federal system released nobody in Nova Scotia, but in the provincial system, there really was just a huge collaborative effort that, first of all, recognized the increase in um risk for people who are incarcerated, you know, in particular in provincial facilities, which are, as I noted, remand centers. So largely people who have not been convicted of a crime, largely African Nova Scotian and Indigenous women. And what we learned, of course, was largely uh, these are people who are also experiencing homelessness. So when COVID hit, there was incredible leadership by um by the courts and uh, by one judge in particular, Chief Judge Williams, um, who really led the work in the courts to process as many bail releases as they could. And what we saw in community immediately was that um, although all of these releases were being allowed and, and sort of processed, for lack of a better term, there was actually nowhere for these people to go. And as community, we just refused to accept that. We refused to accept that people would have to stay in jail because they didn't have anywhere to go. And this is very different for women uh, who have very different support systems. So for men, sometimes they have a mom or a girlfriend or, um, you know, someone who's willing to sort of step up and offer them a place to go. But for women, um, that's not always the case. And so what we did was we started renting hotel rooms. We came together uh, with other community organizations like the Elizabeth Fry Society of Mainland, uh, who also support uh, prisoners. And we started renting hotel rooms. We started uh, imagining what uh, a community response could look like to allow for proper reintegration, for safe reintegration. And then uh, we, you know, of course, had to figure out how to keep people safe from the pandemic once they were in the community and how to wrap services around people so that they could access the things that they needed. Basic, of course, all of the basic needs like food and medication and things like that. But Uh, cultural supports, um, you know, access to um, traditional and healing medicines, access to counseling and therapy, access to doctors, access to harm reduction. And so what we did is we 
brought all of those services together, wrapped them around all of the prisoners. And it was an incredibly successful project. It was vastly underfunded. It did not receive any provincial funding from the Department of Justice or from the Department of Housing. And ultimately in Nova Scotia, 41%, as, as you mentioned, of the provincial prisoner population was released. This is the highest number that I've heard nationally. It was because of community, because community came together and said, these are our people and and we need to figure this out together. So that's what we did. And it shows what's possible. <laughs> it demonstrated that it's possible. Exactly. It's possible to decarcerate. It's possible to to provide alternatives to jails and prisons. It's possible to keep people safe. And over the course of six months, there was only two breaches of court conditions. And those breaches were par for the course. They weren't really serious breaches. And so we exactly demonstrated that we can actually care for people better in community. And we have the ability and the resources to do that. And I imagine that Caitlin's house, is it called Caitlin's house, Caitlin's place? Caitlin's place. It's part of that effort. And I want to get back to you on that as well before the end of the interview. I think I'll turn to Robert now and try to explore this issue of narrative debris a little bit that comes up in McKendy's work. So McKendy talks about on his analysis, what happens when you take people who have had full lives, who have had, you know, a trajectory of experiences that have led them to the place where they are incarcerated. And then when we try to force those people's narratives through this lens of full responsibility, um, McKendy says that uh, this ends up coming out in the ways they speak. And you hear this kind of narrative debris because people aren't actually able to communicate what have been their experiences. And so the students were interested, Rob, in hearing your reflection on this idea of narrative debris. Does this, does it sound familiar to you? Does this sound true to you given your experience with inmates? Over the years? Yes, it certainly does. I'll just uh, reiterate before that throughout my career, I was in a lot of situations where I would be in the presence of prisoners who were attempting to explain their situation and attempting to achieve something from that explanation. That included parole board hearings, Prisoners who are applying to go to reduce security. I used to chair a board at Millhaven Penitentiary called the Regional Classification Board. And all of the maximum security prisoners who had applied to go to medium security would have a chance to come up and address us face to face at the board. So all of these experiences, I can say that uh, I was able to see that common thread that McKendie speaks of. I know that the system, because I was part of it, I know that the system does not show a great deal of time for the prisoner who wishes to talk about the terrible things that happened during his life and how they may have affected him. I very much agree with Mr. McKendie's analysis that the person who has the best chance of being granted parole when they go up before the parole board is somebody who takes responsibility for what they've done, who attempts to demonstrate remorse through their words, and somebody who can show that they've given some thought to why they offended and what they plan to do differently the next time to avoid getting into a similar situation. 
And I would say that last example kind of, again, supports Mr. McKendy's view. If the crux of the matter to the parole board in their relationship with the prisoner, if the crux is what are you going to do differently next time? And have you really taken responsibility for how it went wrong? I don't see too much contrary to what's being suggested in the article. And as I said, this was segregation review boards, which more accurately should be called solitary confinement. Solitary confinement boards, parole boards, detention review boards, all of these hearings that go on inside federal prisons all have that as a common thread. The prisoner's never there with the freedom, I guess, to, to speak about the things that have happened to them, but rather to speak about how they could have acted differently and how they plan to act differently next time. I'll turn it back to you. Mm -hmm. Are there any advantages or are there any strengths to this kind of approach as far as you can see? Are there good reasons for parole boards to function in this way or do you take a purely critical lens to, to what's happening in that regard? Are there benefits to encouraging um, or kind of pushing inmates towards taking responsibility? I suppose there is to some extent, but it has to be in context with the whole picture. As it stands right now, I would say that's the primary focus, and I'm not sure that's a healthy or an accurate way to find out whether the person will reoffend. Yeah, I'm not sure if I answered your question there, but I'll mm -hmm. turn it back to you. Yeah, I think that your idea that taking responsibility needs to be in the context of the full picture is very much in line with how McKendie kind of finishes off his article as well. If people are to fully take responsibility, he argues they need to be able to kind of express themselves freely and in communication in a way that fully accounts for their life stories and to come naturally to a sense of responsibility where appropriate out of that kind of communication. So, yeah, what you're saying lines up with the article for me. And McKendie actually raises the suggestion, drawing on the work, the scholarship of Maruna in the UK, that responsabilization could actually be counterproductive in terms of reintegration. So I guess Maruna's idea, if I could sum it up, is that it, it ties in with this labeling theory. And Ashley, you were talking about labeling earlier as well. So the notion that if people living in prisons are forced to take on this narrative of themselves as people who have done bad things and who are fully responsible for those bad things, rather than, again, understanding the trajectory and the social context that brought them to that point, then perhaps they will leave carrying that label, seeing themselves in that way and act accordingly. And so be more likely then to reoffend than they would have been if they'd been able to have, you know, real conversation. So again, that's kind of McKendie's perspective. And I, I'll go to you, Rob, first on this as well to ask whether this resonates as, as true for you or how you have observed this unfolding or, or not in your experience. Yes, thank you again. It does resonate with me very much. I will mention it. The earliest part of my career when I was a parole officer, I was also the institutional liaison for a drug and alcohol program, which we were running at the time, which was coordinated with a facility in Windsor called Brentwood, the Brentwood Recovery Center. Part of my role as a parole officer and the institutional liaison was to attend the meetings. And so usually about two or three afternoons a week, I would try to get down there. And the Brentwood meetings were similar to an AA meeting. 
in that people got up and spoke about what they were going through and what they were feeling. And then later off, there were discussions, small group, and then one-on-ones. And so in those experiences, I talked to a lot of guys in a less formal way than I did as normally as my, as in my parole officer role. These were more casual conversations just between two people. And I would say, yes, very much so, you know, to have somebody acknowledge that what they've gone through is not normal and what they experienced and the things that happened to them may have caused them or helped to cause them to get to where they are, I think would be restorative rather than constantly being told you're just somebody who could have chosen differently, but there's a little bit of bad in you and you've got what you deserve. I don't want to get off topic, but I think back to when my daughter was starting university, she said, I don't know if I can do this. And I told her, I said, Steph, you really didn't try that hard in high school. You don't know what you can do yet. And, you know, that may may be a poor metaphor, but if people believe that they didn't have a fair shot, if they really believe that it wasn't 110% their own fault and no one else's, if they believe there's a glimmer of light for change, I see that as a very positive thing. So I'm sorry to use so many words. You'd think having been edited by a publisher, I would be able to be more succinct. Yes, I'm very much in agreement with the idea of acknowledging the past and using this something as a way to look to the future. I'll turn it back to you. Thank you so much. And you're very succinct. Ashley, you mentioned the term trauma-informed perspective at one point, and this is actually a framework that students raised questions about. One of the students in the class made a really interesting comment, which drew something to my attention that I hadn't actually thought about before. So she was pointing out that this notion or these processes of responsabilization are kind of the opposite of a trauma-informed trauma-informed perspective has become something that's very accepted as a practice in all kinds of realms and institutions. It's what we should be bringing to our work, but somehow in the prison system, it's different and we're responsibilizing instead of bringing, I'm kind of stumbling over my words myself at this point, but the student pointed out that the trauma-informed perspective by definition kind of takes into account the individual's experiences and the traumatic aspects of their life that may have brought them where they are. Responsabilization doesn't accept any of that. So do you think that the criminal justice system could and or should become more informed by a trauma-informed perspective. So should that happen? Is it possible? And if it's possible, how how should it look? I have a very brief answer to this. (laughs) and It it may not be favorable. I don't actually believe in reform and I don't support it. When you're talking about morphing the criminal justice system to be able to be more trauma-informed or have a trauma-informed lens or framework. I think, yes, that sounds great in theory, but prisons and jails are inherently violent and they're inherently traumatizing and they re-traumatize and re-victimize women every single day. And I don't think that by slapping a different lens on it, it's going to fundamentally shift any of those things. So, Theoretically, yes, it would be great if every correctional officer and prison guard had some type of trauma-informed training so that they could work with those who are incarcerated and imprisoned using that lens. But I don't think that it would make any real meaningful difference. 
the way to make a real meaningful difference is to not incarcerate people and to not put people in cages and to let people do the work of healing in the community where there are trauma-informed professionals who really are able to use that lens in a forum that's more appropriate. Mm -hmm. Robert, for your part, would you identify yourself as a prison abolitionist or what do you think needs to happen in terms of making things right with this system or without it, as the case may be? Honestly, I don't think the system can be fixed. The organizational culture is so deeply entrenched at all levels of the prison system. The truth is, is that the average uh, citizen believes that prison should be a little bit unpleasant. And that's unfortunate because that's basically formed the crux of the organizational culture, which has permeated it for 135 years plus. So, yes, I agree with Ashley. I don't think you can fix the system. I am very much in favor of community alternatives, and I am very, very much in favor of restorative justice. That would be my answer. I would go along with less incarceration to abolishing it at some point. And if not abolishing it, then the system needs to be focused on rehabilitation as opposed to punishment. Back to you. What does restorative justice mean to you in practice, Robert? It means gender and the victim together in a safe, secure setting and allowing the process of healing to occur through communication, moderated communication. And it has shown to have some pretty remarkable results. I can't, I'm not an expert in it, but I have studied it a little bit as a result of my career. I have met prisoners who have been involved in it who said that was the most terrible part of the whole thing. It was worse than being sentenced. It was worse than arriving at the prison. Actually facing the person who they had transgressed against and having to explain themselves and answer their questions was far more intimidating and terrifying than actually being told you're getting five years. I'll back mm -hmm. to you. Do you have thoughts on restorative justice, Ashley? Certainly it's something that I've worked with and, and seen quite a bit over the last few years. I think restorative justice principles are incredibly important in all of the work that we're doing and working with prisoners and community. But I think in many cases, restorative justice as an alternative is really important and does work and can work. I think really it's about bringing together community and addressing harm in a more meaningful way, as opposed to throwing somebody into a prison cell, which is, as Rob suggested, what the public wants. It actually forces people to address any harm that has been done in a more meaningful way that has the opportunity and the possibility to be transformational. And so I think that's really beautiful and, and something that we need more of. And I think restorative justice is one of the alternatives to incarceration, imprisonment and criminalization. It's one tool in our toolkit of the many responses that we as a community can provide. Yes, I certainly identify myself as an abolitionist, but I think that in order to get there, we have to build the resources and the responses in the community. And as we build those things sort of organically, I think we will start to see less people being put in prisons and jails. And I think that's how the decarceration and building in community is the way that we make that system obsolete. 
And so on that note, maybe you can tell us a little bit about Caitlin's place, speaking of alternatives to incarceration and new ways of doing things. Yeah. So speaking of restorative justice, so Caitlin's Place is a six-bed bail house. It's a transitional home here in Halifax for women and trans and gender non-conforming folks who are exiting provincial incarceration on bail. It's really designated for people who are experiencing homelessness. So there is such a close link between homelessness and imprisonment. It really is cyclical. And as I mentioned before, many people sit in remand centers because they have nowhere to go. We saw recently uh, an Indigenous woman in Saskatchewan released from a prison and died three days later on a street corner out in the cold. We see people in our own community being released to a 24-hour subway, which is something that's happened recently. And so this idea that people need to sit in a cage because they don't have adequate housing in the community is a significant problem in our own community, in our own backyard, and something that we really felt compelled to respond to which is why we founded Caitlin's Place. And so it really provides a place for women who are still in the process of navigating their criminal charges, still navigating the court system, but to do that in community instead of in a cage, to do that where there's programming, where there's a culture of support and healing, where there's addictions programming, where where there's connection to their children. So we have an in-house family justice worker who helps women and mothers to reconnect with their children, which is such an important component and people's healing and, and something that is just not able to be provided when you're in jail. And so we, we're brand new. We've just been open for a few weeks now, but it's really this idea that we have the resources and community and we, we need to start building these things and just doing it. We need to start doing the work and providing these options because once the options are there, the people will come if you build it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Rob, Ashley's been talking a little bit throughout the interview about the particular kind of barriers, labels, experiences of women and non-binary people in the criminal justice system. I was wondering if there are any sort of ways in which masculinity or our frameworks of understanding masculinity of seeing men interact with the experiences of male inmates. Do our ideas about masculinity make a difference to the experiences of male prisoners and how we treat them? Yes, I suppose it does. The popular view of prisons in the community is that they're all full of big muscle-bound guys who fight all the time. And of course, that's not the case at all. But there is a certain machismo mentality that permeates the male prison system. And of course, it's not healthy. Yes, and because of that, and because of the, I would say, many of the prison staff, I don't want to send out the uniform staff as being the only group, but that's where you tend to see it more often. There is this kind of uh, manly man kind of approach to dealing with problems in prison by the majority of the staff, and not necessarily just men. Yeah, there is that problem in prison, and, and for the prisoners who are less physically inclined or are more afraid or some of the mentally ill who tend to be victimized quite often. There's very little help coming in the way of staff supervision or control over the environment. The only alternative for them is long-term solitary confinement. Back to you. Mm -hmm. Which isn't much of an alternative. No, it's not. Okay, I guess we're going to start 
winding up now. We're getting close to the end of our interview, and I just have a couple of questions left. One of them is, which populations or individuals or institutions do you both believe should have a role to play in deciding how prisons should function? Who, who should be making decisions in this context? So I'm going to ask Ashley first, and then I'll turn to, to Rob with this one. Uh, I think the easy answer to that is everyone. So as I've said many times before, criminalization is, is really because of systemic societal issues. It's because of patriarchy. It's because of capitalism. It's because of racism and histories of colonialism. And it is everyone's responsibility who lives in this country to address and redress and create solutions to criminalization. What we have right now is a system that was built by our government. And our government has played a large part in all of those other things that I have mentioned. And so I think part of our work in decarceration and abolition is building community knowledge, building community care, and building partnerships and collaborations. And And that certainly was a big part of the work we did during COVID was finding our allies in the community and aligning with other community-based organizations, and then aligning with people working in the courts and aligning with lawyers and academics and scholars and just regular people and figuring out how we can shift things and create change ourselves instead of relying on our government systems to guide and to lead and to make up these arbitrary rules. And our criminal justice system is an incredibly racist, misogynistic, archaic system that was built like on the fucking monarchy. Like, like it's just so outdated and dusty and irrelevant. And I don't think that we can just rely on our government systems to fix that and to change that. We, we need to overthrow those things entirely. And that requires community. It requires people outside of government. And it requires us to work together in a really transformational way. Mm-hmm. So it's not a matter of who you vote for, you know, trying to trying to make change through the electoral process. You think that a more realistic way to make change is through kind of coalition building and really, again, as you said, work outside government. Absolutely. I just I do not think that government can be reformed. I don't think the criminal justice system can be reformed. I think we need to build things that are new. And that's what we did. This very, very small example of Caitlin's place is just taking matters into our own hands. And it's not government funded. It actually was opposed by our government partners and, oh, well, we're going to do it anyway. And we're going to show you that we're going to save you money because you're not going to be spending $200 a day to incarcerate these six women. And they're actually not going to be cycling in and out of prison for the rest of their lives because they're going to have received the things that they need in community to be healthy and cared for and more of that. Thank you. Rob, what thoughts do you have around um, what populations or institutions should have a voice in deciding how prisons function? Not surprisingly, I tend to agree with Ashley. I think it starts with public opinion. As I mentioned earlier, the simple truth in my personal view about Canadian society as this is right now is that basically the average Canadian believes that if you commit a crime, you should be punished for it. 
my experience with the general public is that very few of them see prison as a place to go and get rehabilitated. Many people, it'd be surprising, many sophisticated people think that sending them to prison and treating them poorly will make them less likely to commit crimes when they're released. So I would say the first place to start is public opinion. And I think although politicians can never fix it, they love to keep their jobs. And if people start taking interest in how our criminal justice system works and what it costs to maintain it, especially as abysmally, what an abysmal failure it is, what it costs to run it, maybe, uh, maybe people will start to have these conversations. And people like Ashley have shown that it can be done, that actually demonstrated that it can be done when people work together. Personally, I'm very pessimistic. I agree that the governments have no interest in it. It's not affecting their jobs right now. And as it stands right now, public opinion is a little bit on the uh, negative side. So a lot of work to do. Back to you. Yeah, great point. So I've got my final question here. The students were wondering how both of you take care of yourselves as people who are involved in supporting those who are involved in the criminal justice system, which must be quite traumatic in and of itself at some times. So how do you take care of yourselves? How does this affect you? First of all, let me start with that. How does this kind of work affect you? And how do you take care of yourselves in this context? Ashley, you go ahead first, please. I hate when I get this question <laughs> because I don't take care of myself. Um, and <laughs> that's the wrong answer. And I think that's uh, I just have to be brutally honest, but I, I, you know, I defer back to my teacher and mentor, Al Jones, who talks really about self-care as being a collective responsibility. You know, it really is about community care. And when we as community create the conditions for everybody to be safe and cared for, then that really is what we should be striving for. But yes, I do small things to take care of myself. This work is very traumatizing. I've lost four clients this this year to poverty and to mental illness and to addictions. And it's very hard to get up every day and, and to do the work and to lose people. But at the same time, really is my passion that keeps me in it. And it's the women that I work with that keep me in it. And I, I show up every day for them. And I find ways to take care of myself when I can. I'm taking vacation next week. So <laughs> that is my, uh, my self-care is just taking time off to rest, but also just sort of being in community with other organizers, with other people who are doing this work, having amazing conversations like this with people like Rob, who have this wealth of knowledge and expertise and feeling inspired by that. And yeah, it's just a, a question that has a, an evolving answer for me. I know it's something that is always asked of, in particular, frontline workers. But as an executive director, I make it my daily mission to make sure that as an organization, there is space for the, the people who work in the organization to take care of themselves and that we take care of each other and that we check in with each other. And it's not always about working. Sometimes it's about taking care of one another and being together and having really open conversations about how hard this work is and how cruel this world is and how we can sort of reconcile that. Yeah. Thanks. Rob, what about you? How do you take care of yourself in the context of this work? 
I seem to be saying this a lot today. I'll agree with Ashley. I actually retired in 2010. So <laughs> it's been a long time since I've had to do anything like that. But I can tell you that during the 30 years I worked, I did not take care of myself. Like Ashley, I took it personally, the job. I took it personally when people, you know, had their feet on the desk and did nothing. I took it personally when I saw prisoners being mistreated. So, yeah, I had a great, a lot of frustration during my career. I didn't manage it well. Uh, I used to drink too much. I don't drink at all now. But by the time I retired, I was a walking ghost. I was just fed up. And, I, and then Mr. Harper was coming into power at that time with a tough-on-crime agenda. So it was just the perfect storm. I had to get out. Yeah, looking back on it now, I think I'd be better now. I think I'm, my focus has kind of returned a bit. It helped to get a lot of stuff out when I wrote the book. It was kind of cathartic. But at the time, I can remember feeling overwhelmed a lot and just never giving up, just butting heads all the time and coming home tired. Back to you. And Ashley's a writer too. She works in, she used to do some spoken word, but she hasn't had time for that lately. So maybe part of your advice for her would be to find a little time for spoken word. Maybe a better question for you, um, Rob, and this really will be my last question, is what advice you would give to Ashley as somebody who has, you know, spent decades working in the system and now had to kind of recover from that experience, it sounds like. What, what would you suggest that Ashley do to take care of herself? I don't even have to think about it. I've only just met her and I already know the answer. I think she should write her memoirs. I think it would be an amazing book. It would be a wonderful book for many people and you will find an amazing cathartic experience. And I have no doubt that the book would be published and would be a great help. Thank you so much. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's a great note to end on. I'm going to call that the end of the interview. 